The Egyptian History Podcast, Episode 17, A New Era. King Unas was dead after a reign of 30 years. The Fifth Dynasty has now come to its end, and this episode opens a new era in the history of the Egyptian monarchy and its society. Unas was laid to rest by his son-in-law, Teti, a young man of elite origin who married Unas's daughter, a woman named Iput. As he placed his predecessor in the tomb, Teti was placing a final seal on the line of male rulers that had endured for over a century. While the bloodline was preserved in the form of his wife, Iput, Teti's reign is generally held to be an appropriate place to divide between the 5th dynasty and the next period. In the coming years and episodes, the elites as a social group will become even more visible than they have previously, and soon we can talk about their lifetime achievements and careers in as much detail as we have talked about the kings until this point. Among Teti's contemporaries were two high-ranking officials who served in the central administration around this time period. We are not certain exactly when they lived, but current scholarly consensus places them at the end of the 5th dynasty, or during the early half of the 6th. Thus, it seems as good a time as any to get into the works and careers of these two officials. Their names are Kargemni and Tahotep. Tahotep, whose name translates to Ta is satisfied, referencing the craftsman-slash-creator god, was a vizier who probably came to prominence around the time of Jed Kare or Unas. Late in his life, probably during Tete's early reign, Tahotep dictated a guidebook for his son, who went by the same name. The guidebook that Tahotep wrote is commonly referred to as the Maxims or Teachings of Tahotep and it was copied repeatedly during later eras, and survives to us in papyrus copies made during the Middle and New Kingdom. It was one of the texts commonly used to teach young scribes the art of writing hieroglyphs, and the importance of intellectual discourse and moral behaviour. In Western society, children are commonly taught Bible passages as a way of establishing morality from a Christian perspective. For the Egyptians, their morality was conveyed through the myths and legends of the past, the records of noble kings, and the writings of men like Tahotep. The teachings of Tahotep are not intended to provide moral laws, but instead give their audience practical advice on how to conduct themselves in the presence of superiors, colleagues, and subordinates. They teach a sense of ethical responsibility, and the appropriate ways to engage with the society around them. The following passage from the teachings of Tahotep illustrates this point quite succinctly. Do not be arrogant because of your knowledge, but take counsel with both the ignorant and the learned. For no person has ever become perfectly competent, and there is no craftsman who has acquired complete mastery of his art. Good advice is rarer than an emerald, but it may be found among the women who work at the grindstones. Tahotep recognized that an educated man was not guaranteed to be wise, and that an ignorant man was not necessarily stupid. 
Pretty forward-thinking stuff for 2300 BC, and one that I think we can take some value from today. The idea of education breeding arrogance probably had a great importance for the elder statesmen of this era. By the time Tahotep came to write his work, the elites had been gaining social prominence for a good 50 to 60 years, possibly even longer, ever since the early years of the 5th dynasty. So arrogance was probably a fairly common thread running through the upper classes of the time, who may have felt that they were the apogee of culture and intellectual society in Egypt until this point. Tahotep, like all good sages, cautioned against this arrogance, and reminded his readers that a wise mind is sensible whether it's been educated in a school of letters or in the school of life. He even brought his experience of government and the law into his writings, counselling the reader on the best ways to argue with stubborn adversaries. Listen to this. If you come upon an aggressive adversary, one who has influence and is more excellent than you, lower your arms and bend your back, for if you stand up to him, he will not give in to you. You should disparage his belligerent speech by not opposing him in his anger. The result will be that he is called rude, and your control of your temper will withstand his rambling. We've all met this person at some point. That loud, opinionated, and obnoxious person who thunders on dramatically in any argument, so convinced of their correctness that they will try to defeat all opposition by sheer volume. Tahotep met that person probably on more than one occasion, and he figured out very quickly that these people do more damage to their own reputations than you could ever do with your retaliation. By taking a step back, letting them run their mouth off, and maintaining your temper, Tahotep says that you will always come out looking more dignified and respectable. Pretty reasonable advice. So far, so good. Because Egyptian social traditions were big on status and hierarchy, Tahotep includes three variants of the little passage that I just read you, one of which applied to adversaries who are more illustrious than you, one for your equals, and one for those of inferior rank. In each case, Tahotep counsels restraint and good temper so that the opponent will look disreputable either because they are overbearing, or because they are arrogant. He also says that to bring your full vengeance on a person of lower social standing is an example of poor character on your part, for punishing others for their ignorance is to punish them for something they have not had the opportunity to rectify. In this sense, we can recognize Tahotep as a man of empathy, who viewed society as a hierarchy of status, but who was not so caught up in his own identity that he looked down on those who did not match him. Of course, having reached an advanced age, after many years of arguing with opponents and colleagues, perhaps Tahotep had finally grown weary of the endless battles and simply decided that the most productive course was sensible silence. His advice tends to follow in this vein. Show restraint, know when to speak and when to hold your tongue, 
and show respect to others always. On the issue of raising children and leading your family, Tahotep has this to say. Build their character. Do not instill in them anything that is offensive. Strengthen Ma'at, and your children will live. As for the first one who succumbs to evil, men will gossip about what they have seen, for that is the way of the world. And they will gossip about what they hear, for that is also the way of the world. Take heed of everyone, and avoid giving others reason to gossip. Wealth does not amount to much otherwise. When I think of this little section, which talks about the value of hiding scandals and ensuring that your family always presents the best face to the world, I am reminded of someone like the patriarch of the Kennedy family, Joseph P. Kennedy. Or at least, I'm reminded of the popular characterization of this man, an influential and powerful individual working to advance the legacy of his family by controlling their public behavior and image. I think this is the sort of thing Tahotep is getting at here. After serving for years in the highest echelons of court life, he seems to have become very concerned with the behavior of his family. Poor representation and scandal could presumably dog an Egyptian man's career, and since authority and status were predicated on the king's favor, incurring Teti's displeasure could have been disastrous for the vizier. Now, by all accounts, Teti was a reasonably well-respected king, but at the end of the day, he was an absolute monarch, who had power to dictate the status and authority of his subordinates. It's hard to pinpoint exactly how much the kings exercised this authority, but the threat was always there, so I think Tahotep's concerns about his family and their behavior were, at least in his world, somewhat justified. Indeed, if we carry on with a couple more passages, we'll see just how powerful the notion of patronage and influence was for Egyptian society. Listen to this. Behave so that your master may say of you, how well he was brought up by his father, by whom he was born of his body. Behold, a good son who is given by the God is one who exceeds what was told him by his master. He will perform ma'at, for his heart will have controlled his actions. More importantly, obedience to your superiors and the courage to exceed one's responsibilities for the good of the society reflected splendidly on son and father. In this sense, the drive to impress your master formed a really influential core of Egyptian thinking, guiding their behavior even at a time when the earthly wealth and power of the elites was growing. In late Republican Rome, around the time of Julius Caesar, patronage was almost a formal institution within the society. A wealthy or influential man possessed a list of those individuals who counted him as their benefactor or patron. A man's clients could enhance his social prestige go to lobby for him in political situations like elections or crucial votes, and generally act as his legal entourage. Now, Egypt was not quite so formal in this regard. The top patron in the land was the king, 
and it was from him that one gained access to high offices or the right to build stately tombs. But beneath this, patronage was closer to something that we might consider like a mentor system. Tahotep, for example, was writing for his colleagues and the younger generation who were rising in the ranks. An Egyptian official was expected to ensure that the younger generation serving him and his colleagues were taught their responsibilities and duties long before they ever needed to take up the post. As a mentor to these younger men, Tahotep the vizier was training the next generation of high officials and governors. By dictating the many lessons he had learned to a scribe, and ensuring they were compiled into what we now know as the teachings, Tahotep fulfilled his duties in a way that few before had achieved. So the idea was partly to attain immortality, and it certainly succeeded. Documents from scribal schools in the New Kingdom and Late Period reference Tahotep's teachings, and it seems that this work was used like a standard text for a millennium after Tahotep's death. Of course, it wasn't long before Tahotep inspired others to follow his example, and record their lessons for future generations. A contemporary of Tahotep followed this and dictated some lessons for his son, a man named Kargemni, who was destined to also attain the rank of vizier. The instructions written for Kargemni are preserved in a much more fragmentary state than Tahotep's, but do provide some interesting comments on behaviour and social etiquette. More importantly, the instructions for Kargemni reveal some sense of the widespread competition which defined life at court for many elites. Listen to the following, and you'll see what I mean. The submissive man prospers. The moderate man is praised. The gate is open for the silent man, and the place of the contented man is large. Do not talk loosely, for the flint knives are sharp against the one who strays from the road. There is no haste, except at his misdeed. In other words, Egyptian elite men were fiercely competitive, and were ready to cut down verbally any of their peers who showed weakness or strayed from the proper behavioural norms. The author continues, If you sit with a crowd, abstain from the food that you desire, for controlling your desire requires only a moment, but gluttony is despicable, and one points their finger at it. A cup of water quenches thirst, and a mouthful of beer makes the heart strong. Take a single good thing instead of dainties, and a little bit instead of much. Restraint in all things seems to be the general philosophy coming through these texts. For an elite who were probably gaining access to more wealth than ever before, the lesson must have been timely. It's not hard to imagine the early 6th dynasty as a time of raucous banquets and Great Gatsby-esque partying for the Egyptian elite. After all, their families were more powerful than ever before and wealthier than ever before. Whether this indicates that the late 5th and early 6th dynasties were a period of decadence is up for debate. 
I've suggested that the wealth of the most prominent families probably did lead to a greater sense of public display. But it's worth remembering that all of these people lived within a very clearly defined social and moral system. This wasn't a period of orgies or overall debauchery, merely one where wealth was more visibly displayed and by a larger group of people than had previously been the case. Speaking of ostentatious displays, Tahotep even had a few things to say on what we might call trophy wives. If you take to wife one who is silly and frivolous, of light-hearted disposition, and known to her townsmen, wink wink, she may continue in her ways, when at any moment it strikes her fancy. Do not send her away, but allow her to eat at your table. A light-hearted woman at least provides amusement. Tahotep may have advocated for some very socially positive ideas, but when it came to the matter of a wife, he seems to have had less than a modern perspective on the values of different personalities. Frivolous, light-hearted women he condemns, but appreciates them as delightful fancies, objects for his amusement. Lord knows what stern, serious, or humorless woman he genuinely respected, but I sometimes wonder if he included this little paragraph as a defence for some sort of dalliance with younger women later in his life. The issues of sexuality, marriage, and gender in Egyptian society are something I've avoided a bit so far, and I'm not going to talk about them too much today. Essentially, the evidence for Egyptian social customs around these concepts is difficult to pin down, and is best discussed when we reach later eras like the New Kingdom. The world that Tahotep wrote in was one of newly wealthy families who had risen quickly in the social and political hierarchy. Part of this increased wealth seems to have brought with it a sense of social obligation and generosity. Tahotep wrote in his memoirs that to be wealthy demanded that one be generous, and not to withhold your gains from your friends, family, or colleagues. Be generous as long as you live, for what goes out from the storehouse does not go back in, and men are eager for bread which is freely given. He whose stomach is empty is an accuser, and an opponent becomes a bringer of woe. Compassion is a man's monument throughout all the years which follow his tenure of office. Acknowledge your assistance when you have wealth, and do not be of stingy disposition towards your friends. Such is like a riverbank when it floods. It is greater than one's wealth. The property of one man may pass to another, but the integrity of a kind man is always beneficial to him, and a good character will be his monument. The concept that a man of wealth should always remember to be generous is obviously not a new one, but it is wonderful to recognise that among the Egyptian elites, individuals could and did advocate for a more generous sense of spirit towards their dependents and friends. 
Of course, Tahotep acknowledged that virtue and generosity had more benefits than mere satisfaction. They increased the visibility of a man's good behaviour, and endeared him to others in his social group. Reputation, distinction, virtue, these were rewards of a generous spirit. For the Egyptian elite of the early 6th dynasty, wealth was useful in itself only up to a point. Eventually it had to be used. And what better way to use it than to enhance your public reputation? A good standing had other benefits too. When a man died and journeyed to Osiris' kingdom, it was good to have generous deeds and moments of virtuous conduct on his record. So when Tahotep proposes this generosity, he's not really arguing on economic terms, but instead rallying his contemporaries to ensure that they contributed meaningfully to Ma'at, that overriding sense of the universe's cosmic order. Call it gaming the system if you like, but I think it's more accurate to say that Egyptian belief systems carried a very strong element of act in society's best interests and you will be rewarded. To believe in the gods and venerate them was one thing, but to help others and to benefit the wider society was better. You'll find no modern evangelist notions in Egyptian ideology, where merely accepting a god into your heart is enough to ensure eternal happiness. There were dues to be paid, and Tahotep makes this point loudly. Tahotep and the father of Kargimni were not the only ones making vocal their thoughts on virtuous living. The 5th dynasty was a time when officials commissioned autobiographies for their tombs, records of their lives which emphasised the good deeds they had made, and the negative actions they refused to take. The priest and judge, Hetep Kher Aketi, built a tomb at Saqqara, in which he testified the following. I have made this tomb from my rightful means, and I never took the property of anyone. All persons who worked at it for me worked while praising the god for me. I never did anything by force against anyone. As the god loves a true thing, I am one honoured by the king. Certainly, the Egyptian cultural tradition is rich in material from which you can learn how to construct a good life. Indeed, when we finally reach the Roman period of this podcast, and discuss the increasing prominence of Christianity within the Mediterranean, it will be a relatively simple matter to expand Egyptian morality and show how it influenced early Christian dogma and behavioural codes. I'll reach that one day, hopefully before too long, but one day. For now, let us simply recognise that from an early period of their growing wealth, and certainly during the early 6th dynasty, the Egyptian elites began to demonstrate as visibly as possible their earthly obedience to the good moralities. Ma'at was a universal ideology, which was present in all worldly and supernatural beings and places. To break with Ma'at was to endanger the universe, to uphold it was to protect creation against chaos and disorder. There's a lot more that can be said about wisdom literature as a concept in Egyptian history, 
and we will be returning to the theme relatively frequently as the podcast progresses. In the meantime, let's finish our discussion of Tahotep and Kargimni, and return briefly to King Teti. Teti, like a few of his predecessors, took an active interest in the Egyptian economy and the way it functioned. Recognising that one of the most important centres in the early 6th dynasty economic world were the divine temples, he enacted several decrees for the protection of these institutions. At Abydos, the ancient birthplace of Egyptian kingship, and the symbolic home of its royal lineage, Teti set up a decree for the benefit of a local temple. The temple was dedicated to a form of Osiris, known as Kenti Imentiu. Kenti Imentiu, whose name translates to the foremost of the Westerners, was a god of the dead who actually preceded Osiris and was worshipped from the very earliest periods of Egyptian history. He was eventually replaced by Osiris, but during the early 6th dynasty, a temple to Kenti Imentiu was still functioning at Abydos, and Teti made sure that it had the provisions necessary for its ongoing operation. In a very fragmented decree, Teti forbade any local official from taking personnel or goods from the temple, and exempted the temple from any tax obligation forevermore. He empowered his overseer of Upper Egypt, a man named Nikau Izezi, whose name references the king Jedkare Izezi, to protect the centre and ensure its continued functioning. By doing this, Teti ensured that he was viewed favourably by the priesthood of the local temple and the god Kenti Imentiu, whom they served. He also unwittingly contributed to the slow decline in royal resources, which is a hallmark of the 6th dynasty. As more temples and local centres were freed from tax obligations, the royal treasury was slowly depleted. Eventually, something like a budget crisis hamstrung the ruling household, and left them as little more than figureheads in their own kingdom. For now though, the king was still wealthy enough to build a small pyramid at Saqqara, just north of the pyramid of Userkaf. The pyramid of Teti is the second pyramid in history to feature the pyramid texts, which Unas had brought into his tomb as a new way of combining the afterlife with the authority and power of the king. Teti's pyramid texts are essentially the same as Unas's in most details, so I won't read them to you today. If you want to hear some of the essential texts found in the pyramid texts, you will find them in episode 16, where I've uploaded a YouTube video of the pyramid texts being read by a YouTube poster named Orlando Matsubata. Next week, we will finish the reign of Teti. A modest but benevolent king, Teti bears the dubious distinction of being the first Egyptian ruler who seems to have been the target of a conspiracy, when several members of the royal family and the court conspired to murder him. Tune in soon to learn of our hero's fate as we continue the Egyptian History Podcast.